Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro. David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Okay, now our interview today. We are doing a true crime, and uh, the book's called Race to Justice, and uh, the guests are Larry Sells and Margie Porter. So let's start with Larry, because Larry, you were a prosecutor on the case, is that right? I was. And Got so, involved late in the game, but yes, I was. So how did you get to where you wanted to do a book on it? Well, I wanted to do it, it was such a an important and interesting case that I wanted to do it from the outset, uh, shortly after the the trial. And I tried, uh, but i got to admit to you, admit it that I'm just not much of a writer. I can talk in the courtroom, but uh, I have a hard time, uh, especially writing a, a feature or a full-length book. Oh yeah, yeah. I just no, happened to run into a young lady that's a gifted writer, Marjorie Porter, and that's yeah. how the book got written. Well, but but what, I, I think what I'm getting at is now in this why why this particular case? What was it about this case that made you kind of go of all the work you've done in your life and all the cases and justice you've come across? 
Why would you pick this case? Well, first of all, it was connected to uh, the Indianapolis 500-mile uh, race. People worked there for racing teams, the victim and the uh, the person charged and convicted of the crime. Uh, <clears throat> that was an interesting factor, and Cindy Albrecht in particular, the victim in this case, worked for the number one uh, IndyCar racing team, the Marble Penske racing team, and she was so well-known and so liked in the racing community. I mean, everybody loved the girl. She just had the, the type of personality that drew people to her and such a nice, warm human being. And the vicious way that she met her death, I mean, it, it, I saw photographs, not until four years later, but I saw photographs of the crime scene where she was found. I couldn't imagine anybody doing that to, to someone, especially someone they supposedly loved. It, it was just horrendous. It was the most grisly uh, photos, uh, photographic evidence I'd seen in a case. Wow. So and now- there, was, there was the fact that nobody seemed willing to, to do anything about it. The, the homicide detective on the case, Bill Jones from the Speedway Police Department, where this happened, and that's part of the Indianapolis metro area, <clears throat> worked his tail off gathering evidence, and he did an amazing job of not only interviewing all the possible witnesses and possible suspects, but getting documentary evidence, uh, bank records, telephone records, that, that, that were extremely important in the case. And the prosecutors, both in the county where the crime happened uh, here in Indianapolis, Marion County, Indiana, and where the body was found about 100 and some miles north of Indianapolis in Newton County, uh, none of them seemed to have any interest in, in filing the case. They just didn't feel like there was sufficient evidence to warrant filing charges. And then they talked to me, and I don't know whether I just saw things they didn't see or I had more guts than I had brains. I'm not sure of the reason. But I was convinced there was enough evidence there to file charges, and I thought there was enough evidence to convict him. Wow. And so, the jury ought to make that decision. Now, now uh, Margie, um, I was going to say, um, what drew you into the case? Like, what, what was uh, enticing for you to want to write this? Well, actually, Al, when I started out, I didn't want to write this book. I was writing a different book for Larry, and I was really enthused about it. And then he comes, and he's talking about this case. And there are so many, this guy killed his wife and almost got away with it books that I thought, you know, nobody's going to read that. But when I tried to write it and failed repeatedly, I said, let me meet her friends. And once I met her friends, I said, there's the story. But the other thing is, I was just furious about the barbarity of the savagery that this woman went through. Um, You probably already know that she was found missing her head. And this was not some Alice in Wonderland off with her head thing. No, this, this was brutal what was done to this woman. And if you've looked at the back of the book, you'll know that my own mother died in an abusive marriage. So I think that anger kind of carried through that nobody deserves to be treated this way. 
And people needed to know this story because it really is a strong and a powerful and a beautiful story because of the loyalty of her friends and the racing community coming together and saying, no, he's not going to get away with this. We want justice. And they tried for six years before Larry got this guy into court. And they were denied justice for a long time. So it really is a powerful story. And I just had to tell it once I knew the story. Pretty incredible. Um, so, d- Larry, did they did they sort of suspect who it was um, that did the murder, and did you guys kind of know but just didn't have the evidence? Well, I wasn't involved in it. It happened October 25th, 26, 1992. I didn't get involved in the case till four years later when I was asked to review it. But at the time it happened, I remember reading in the paper, watching uh television uh, uh, shows about it, about uh, the fact she was missing and who she was and how she was such a valued member of the Marvel Penske racing team and everybody loved her. And I thought, well, I wonder what's happened. And then I read about the finding of, of the body and being identified as her. I thought, man, that's horrible. Who could have done something like that? And at the time, the the husband was initially a suspect, but he had such a solid alibi, law enforcement authorities thought, that they pretty much uh, excluded him uh, as the person that uh, would have done this. But I looked through the, all the evidence, and there were boxes of, uh, of evidence, of photographs, of uh, uh, telephone banking records, of witness statements, uh, I mean, everything that Bill Jones did in investigating the case. And I don't know that anybody had ever gone through all that before. Uh, and I went through it, and there were things that I saw that just pointed right at the person that did this. And, and then uh, convinced my... Uh, then boss to let us file the charges, and we did, and we got an extremely important piece of evidence after that. But I can just basically outline the things. It won't take long, just a couple, minute or two sure. that I saw. First of all, this happened a day before their divorce was to be final. Just a couple weeks before that, they, they both were at the last race of the season at the Laguna Seca up near San Francisco, and he had begged her to come back to him and she said no they've been separated since the may 1992 500 mile race and all this time he's he's trying to get her to come back and she won't she was tired of the abuse that she had suffered at his hands and 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 that's the thing that you know i looked at well wait a minute here She's killed just the day after the divorce, or day that the divorce is to be final, or the day before even. So what's going on here? And then I find out about her begging him, uh, him begging her to come back. And and then when she's missing, uh, he makes a trip to Florida, goes on vacation to Florida. He finds out she's missing. Of course, he knows she's missing. But he finds out she's missing. The police tell him. Uh, everybody in the racing community, all our friends, are looking for her just constantly, 24 hours a day. They're, they met in Indianapolis, and they're all together. They're in teams going out and looking for her, and they can't find her. 
while he's vacationing in Florida, this person he loved that he tried to get to come back to him just two weeks before? That doesn't make any sense. And then her body's found, and he still doesn't seem to show much interest. One thing he did have an interest in, he continued to pay her life insurance premiums, and she didn't even know that uh, he continued that life insurance. A $50,000 policy, and he tried to use that policy to get his boss, uh, Antonio Ferrari, to hire some mafia type to kill her in October of uh, 1992. He was going to use that $50,000 policy to have that done. That's all in there. And there, there, there are other things, too. He took $5,000 when she filed for a divorce, and he got the paperwork on the divorce. He, he gave his dad $5,000 to put in his father's bank account in Wisconsin to hide from Cindy so he wouldn't, she wouldn't know he had the money. And he got that money out the day after she went missing. Got the money out stuck in his pocket. He knew, knew he didn't have to worry about that anymore because she was dead. And the, the, the condition of the body, it just showed rage. Somebody in a rage had to, to have uh, cut and sawed Cindy's head off. That's not I've, – I've been involved in something like – prosecuting something like 70 murder cases. I've never seen a case where there was that much rage involved. Uh, and there was a carry-all in the room that had – in Cindy's apartment that had – over $2,000 in it, and it was in a Marlboro bag, and that was money that, that was left over from the, the Laguna Seca race that she was going to deposit and forward on to Marlboro Penske. Uh, nobody knew about that money except very few people that worked in the uh, Penske organization, and Michael Arbrecht, her husband, knew about it. And, and that that money was gone, but nothing else in the apartment was taken, and there was other money there, but that money was taken. And the alibi that he had, uh, each time people were interviewed in regard to it as alibi witnesses, specifically Bill Filler, who's a primary alibi witness, their timelines kept changing. They tried to, to close in the time period within which he would have had to come to Indianapolis to commit the crime and then get back to Wisconsin. Those are things I saw right away when I looked at it, and I thought, the hell, this guy did it. What are we waiting for? Let's charge him. And eventually we did, and then we got this alibi witness, Bill Filder, to flip. Mm. After I charged him with assisting a criminal for lying about the alibi, he just uh, decided maybe Michael wasn't that good a friend after all, and he, uh, he was concerned about going to prison himself, so he said, okay, this is what happened. And that's pretty much the story in a nutshell is so what happened before so what, we filed what actually, charges. Um, what did the body, what did she go through? Like what, what do you think happened to her? Okay. Well, I believe, and this is in part with evidence provided us by Bill Felder, but I believe that, uh, you know, he tried to get Felder, and this is something I learned after we filed charges, but he tried to get Felder to, uh, commit the crime for him or with him. And this was early October when Filder came to Indianapolis from his home in Wisconsin. He took Filder to the site of the apartments in a wooded area where you could view the apartment. You could actually look inside it without being seen and showed Filder where she would be 
he said, "Now we're going to have to we're going to have to eventually cut her head off because she's uh, you know we don't want her immediately identified." And Fielder looked at him. He'd been a longtime friend of Albrecht's. They just recently renewed their acquaintance. He said, "You're crazy. I'm not going to do that." And he eventually talked uh, Filler into alibying for him, and Filler agreed to do that. But he, Filler didn't know the exact time or day when he was going to do it. He just knew that Albrecht said it had to be done before uh, the divorce became final. So Filler didn't see, he saw him on a Saturday, uh, I think that's the 24th. He didn't see him on the 25th, but the morning of the 26th, Mike Albrecht shows up at Fielder's work site, and he's driving his friend's car, and, and Fielder sees him. He hadn't been able to get in touch with Mike on his, uh, during that period, and he says, well, did you do it? Because he knew it, that he had planned to do it during that period. And Albrecht said, yes, she's in the car. You want to see her? She's in the trunk of the car. And, uh, and uh, Fielder took a step toward the car, and he stopped and said, no, I don't think so. And that uh, is a pretty dramatic moment. At least the jury what thought I think so. Made it, what I think made it much worse was this. It was right at the end of the race season. She was the happiest woman on the planet. She was working for Roger Penske. Now, Roger Penske is a very private man, but everything I know about him tells me that he was an excellent man to work for, his employees loved him, and she was going to go to work on his yacht, and she was so excited. Plus, she was reconnecting with her mother and going to move to Florida with a new boyfriend. She was, you know, she had literally reinvented her life, and right on the cusp of this, this creep comes up the back stairs and abducts and kills her. Now, we don't know how she died because the head was never found, Okay. But, you know, if, if you look at all the possibilities, do you realize it takes up to eight minutes to strangle a person? I mean, I just I can't imagine what she went through. But anyway, she was carried, you know, back down the stairs, you know, driven 100 or so miles. Apparently, he went back to his ex-wife's house in Milwaukee to have sex with his ex-wife with her in the trunk. I mean, what kind of creature does that? But it just... It just seemed so unfair that it was right at the moment that she was stepping into her happily ever after. So, guys, how, how long did it take you to gather, I suppose this one is probably more for Larry, how, how long did it take um, the police force to gather the information that led to the conviction? Well, I think they had all the credible evidence they needed within a year of the investigation. But no other prosecutor, they couldn't convince any other prosecutor to file a case. And Margie, I'm sorry, sorry. go ahead. No, no, carry on. Margie has pretty much outlined what my theory was, too, that, you know, he, he got her in the apartment. The back door he knew would be open because she always kept it open when she'd just gotten back from that race at Laguna Seca. And she was there and taking a shower, was laying on the couch, and her cats were looking out the screen door. And he knew that that was her normal procedure. And he he just went up the back stairs. She probably saw him, but she really wasn't scared of him. 
Uh, she should have been. She wasn't. She's probably surprised that he was there. But, uh, he, you know, he'd been trying to get her to come back to him. And she uh, probably opened the screen door or he opened it to to talk to her. And he, he strangled her, carried her. He wrapped her in a comforter off the bed because that was missing. She was probably wearing just a big, large Garthbrook T-shirt that she wore uh, when she went to bed. That was missing. Those were the only two things that were missing from the house other than her. And he threw in the trunk after he killed her, threw in the trunk of the car, drive back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, because he wanted to make sure he still had that alibi timeline in play. Stayed there at her, his wife's house, got up in the morning, went out, saw Fielder, and then he uh, headed back toward Indianapolis, and he stopped off at that area about halfway between Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Indianapolis. As a matter of fact, it's right near a nudist colony at uh, the Roseland Demont exit. And he uh, went to this wooded area that was used to to dump appliances, and and he probably knew generally about that area. He took her in there in the daylight, cut her head off, wrapped her head in that comforter, maybe used a plastic uh, uh, bag or something as well, and put it. Uh, he he laid her out there on the uh, on the ground and sort of staged like some sex-crazed serial killer had committed the act, and then he left, took the head with him. We never did recover the head. And I, I, I understand that, but I, I suppose the angle at which I was asking Larry is, is the investigation process itself, because uh, we're hearing a lot of maybes, so maybe this happened and maybe that happened, which is what professional as professionals, we hypothesize those things, um, and uh, I understand that. But I'm just thinking in terms of the factual evidence that was before the court and how long that took to gather and how they gathered it. Well, I indicated that Detective Bill Jones from the Speedway Police Department was the lead detective on the case. He had the assistance of the Indiana State Police, too. Bill Kruger, a detective with them, and he also had help from an FBI agent in the Milwaukee area in interviewing witnesses. But most of those interviews were all conducted, and most of that evidence was all gathered within a year's time. Uh, Bill Jones kept, after uh, pursuing every lead, he could he, he could see out there, but there wasn't much done as far as gathering additional evidence until Bill Filter uh, agreed to cooperate, and he got involved, and that was after we'd filed the charges. But the, the, the courts made the decision that the charges, that there was a basis for the charges, went right the same day we filed them, and that was in uh, uh, June of 1997. Yeah, June 97. And you've asked the question, uh, you know, what kind of creature does this? So let's let's talk about that. But what kind of creature does do this? What have we learned about this this um, the killer since? I think he was so consumed with jealousy and revenge. Uh, and that's a those are the primary reasons, and maybe you can just lump those together that that this this was done. I mean, it, it, it came to a pinnacle when she refused to come back to him, and that's what 
drove him over the top. But he he lost his job with a with a with a major racing team in the Indy uh, car circuit, and he blamed her for having lost that job back in 1992. He was commanding a salary of nearly seventy five thousand dollars as his chief mechanic, but because she and he. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He had a falling out, and she was going to leave him. He didn't give his attention to, to his job to the extent that his boss expected him to, the, the, the owner of the, of the team. So he let him go, and Michael had nowhere to turn except to Antonio Ferrari, with whom he had worked before, for whom he had worked before, and that was just a part-time job, making $100 a day when he worked, and and that wasn't every day. So he blamed her for that, and at the same time, she was just spiraling to the top of her profession. She was an executive chef. Penske was even going to hire her in the off-season to work on his yacht in Florida. And and she was so well-respected and so looked up to in the racing community that that he was jealous over that and jealous also that after a few months of their separation, uh, she uh, fell in love with a, a fellow that she was working with, a, a, a key, key person in the Marlboro Penske operation. And, and that just ate away at him. He tried to get his brother, Randy, who was a deputy sheriff in Broward County in Fort Lauderdale, to try to find somebody to rough her up, to do something to her when she came down there in the summer of 92 to visit her mother. 
he just was so upset with her because of what he felt she had done to him and to their marriage, and he didn't want anybody else to have her. So it was a combination of revenge and jealousy motive. And I just think he, you know, his brother even describes him uh, going bounce around from payphone to payphone to call people because he was so concerned during this period that people would know what was going on, what he was plotting, what he was planning, that uh, he, he wouldn't use a regular phone. And you know, his brother turned him down, wouldn't do it. Antonio Ferrari turned him down, and wouldn't get this hitman from the from the mafia. And he didn't even know a hitman from the mafia, but. He turned him down, and, and Albrecht just felt desperate and decided to do it himself. I think, too, that her... her sorry. Sorry. Her, her two best friends pretty much nailed what kind of creature this was because he became very controlling of her. He demanded very dirty and disgusting sexual practices from her. He wanted her home or at work, period. He didn't want her to go shopping with her friends. He didn't want her to have any fun. He would come to her at work and say things to her to, to make her upset. He just absolutely wanted to control her. And I call this the world revolves around me syndrome. Anything that was not about him, he was angry about. And even the two friends were very, very cautious about anything they said in front of him. They could not say anything to imply that they'd had any fun at work, although they had a blast at work. I mean, they were, they were dancing and singing and coming up with comedy routines. These three girls were having a wonderful, wonderful time, but they couldn't even say it in front of him because he would get mad. And they didn't even know what mad looked like except that he had quite a reputation for being abusive even to the men he worked with. I... Yeah, I, I understand that. I think the, um, I guess what I'm thinking is that uh, people aren't born killers. And so is there a possibility that he, and uh, I, this, this, this comment is probably going to um, create outcry f from our audience, but I have to ask the question because um, we, we know that our early experiences shape our later life and our coping mechanisms and our ability to emotionally regulate. So what, what happened or what do we know about his early life that led him to be that person that he grew into? Actually, nothing. He seemed to come from a really great family. I mean, uh, you know, he had, he had three brothers and a sister. And he was, you know, the, the older brother that the little sister looked up to. Um, I didn't see anything in his background as far as, you know, violence or mistreatment or anything. They were just a nice family, the middle class, you know, hardworking dad, had a, a cabin that they vacationed at. And I don't see anything that would make him a killer other than it just all had to be his way. And um, I don't think it was... Envi early environment at all. I think it was the decisions that he made um, as an adult. Okay. Uh, in terms of um, our understanding of his, his early life, is, is, has that been explored with his brother and sister, or are we, are we looking at the, from the outside looking in and trying uh, to come up with? 
we're just looking at the evidence of you know the what we see from the family and of course it is after the fact but no we have not interviewed the brothers and sisters about this except that um in court of course his sister said that you know he was the good brother and the protective brother and uh the the brothers actually were you know putting together a musical group and as far as anyone could tell it was a a good tight-knit family Um, and his ex-wife loved him she she wanted him back even though they got divorced and he married cindy and they had three daughters that that worshiped their dad and cindy spent a lot of time with those those daughters during the period that uh, Michael and Cindy were married, and the daughters got close to Cindy as well. But they worshipped their father, and there wasn't any indication of any aberrant behavior until, uh, you know, right around the time of the, the May 1992 500 and shortly before. Uh, Cindy had been the victim of a, a spousal abuse in Florida, that resulted in her getting a divorce, and it was about that time that she met Michael uh, down in Florida, and they got together and ended up getting married. But there's no indication of it, any any abusive type behavior before uh, the spring of uh, 1992. So, so now the best friend that that covered for him. Um, where did he stand in this? Like, um, so you think that he just knew about it and, and served as an alibi, but didn't uh, partake in any of the the, the killing? Um, and what happened to him? Well, he idolized Michael Albrecht because Michael was a big man in the IndyCar racing community, being a chief mechanic, and they'd known each other uh, when they were younger. Uh, they hadn't spent much time together for years, but then they reconnected before the May 1992 500. And he he just uh, looked up to Michael, and he you know he was willing to do just about anything for him except kill for him. And he he said that he didn't think that Michael was really serious about doing it. Uh, and he he agreed to alibi for him, and he even said after. That something happened to Cindy. That he didn't. He wasn't certain that Michael had done uh, what it, what had happened to her about her being killed and having her head removed. He just didn't think Michael was capable of that. But then, uh, after we talked to him, he he became pretty well convinced that yes, Michael had done it. At least I'm I'm indicating what he said on a couple of television shows. Uh, I can't say that exactly what his feelings were. I do know if he'd had the guts or the the moral fiber to come forward when Michael first talked to him about what he wanted to do to Cindy and try to get him involved in it, that Cindy Albrecht would still be alive today. And Filler's going to have to take that to his grave. Yeah, yeah. Did did he did he end up getting any jail time, or is he just uh, he, he got off for just testifying? Well, you know, he was arrested for the uh, offense of assisting a criminal for lying about the alibi after Michael committed the crime. We couldn't prove any direct evidence uh, between him and the actual commission of the crime of murder, Cindy's murder, but. Uh, 
we, in order to get a statement and cooperation for him, had to give him a grant of what's called use immunity, meaning anything he told us, as long as it was the truth, could not be used in any court proceeding against him. So everything he told us was uh, off limits, as long as we believed him. And when he finished talking to us and we compared to what he said to what evidence we already knew existed, uh, we were convinced he was telling the truth. So we couldn't use that statement he gave us nor his testimony in court. So we were left with the evidence then that we had initially against Michael Albrecht being able to use that. And part of that evidence was provided by Michael Albrecht. And he, we weren't going to call him to testify against Bill Filder. So we were in a position of, not, of having a case that we couldn't prosecute. And I knew that going in, that that was a very likely possibility. But still, I felt like Bill Filder committed that crime, and I thought maybe he might be willing, with a little encouragement, to, to tell us what he knew, what he did, and I'm grateful for that. But I, I ended up dismissing the case against him, not because I was grateful, but because we had no case we could really prosecute it against him. We actually had a, sort of a, a flimsy connection. There was enough evidence, but it wasn't overwhelming as to even jurisdiction over Bill Filler because nearly everything he did was in Wisconsin, and the crime was committed in Indiana. There were some uh, some some things connecting him to the actual commission of the crime, and not commission, but uh, contact with Albrecht and about the alibi and stuff after the crime was committed. But again, uh, we had no case we could prosecute him on after he testified, and cooperated. And when this was shown on Paula Zahn, I think it's very telling that right at the end, Filter said, you know, that if he had called her, if he had done something, she would still be alive. And he, he confessed that guilt on the show. Hmm. So, so Margie, what, what do you hope people get from reading this book? Well, um, I guess it depends on your, your definition of a successful book. I mean, naturally, we think... You know, it would be great if thousands of people read it. But my definition of success for this book is this. If, say, a 100 readers read this book and they're inspired by Cindy's life because she brought herself up from the slums to work for Penske, which is the pinnacle in the racing community, in case you're not aware. She brought herself up. And then she had friends who just had heart and soul devotion to her and Larry uh, just energetically and tirelessly battled in court against literally tigers. And if a hundred people read this book and were inspired by it and then looked in the mirror and said, you know, I want to be a person who makes a difference too, this would be a successful book. Just a hundred people who were inspired by it. And uh, how long did it take you to put this book together? Um, the first draft took about eight months, but it was over 600 pages. So um, the draft I turned in, I think, was number 11. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you know about the racing world before the book, or is this sort of a new, new kind of um, part of the world that you were unaware of? Um, no, I did not know about the racing world. I basically had to get a full education. And it started when Larry brought me five banker's boxes full of files. 
And I was intimidated at first, but then I thought, well, you know, if he could read all this, I can too. So, um, and once I'd met Cindy's friends, I was just determined to tell this story no matter what it took. So there, there, there just wasn't going to, nobody was going to stop me from writing this book after that. And, and so at the end of the day, how, how did, um, how did her friends feel about, uh, the case and, and did they kind of know right from the beginning who did it and, and or was this a surprise? Oh, they felt like they did, and, and one of the things you'll read in the book is how they tormented him. Um, in fact, uh, a great many people in the racing community were in on it just to make sure he never thought that he had gotten away with it. So they played some really great practical jokes on him. Um, one was um, Sandy Fink called his job where he was having a wonderful time working on BMWs and said, um, I'm from the Marion County Prosecutor's Office, and we just want to confirm that Michael works there because, well, you know, he's, he's a person of interest in his wife's death, and so we're trying to keep an eye on him. I, I don't think he kept the job much after that. Um, but they did things just to torment him and let him know that he hadn't gotten away with it. You know, I, I, I love that, that they just would not be defeated. Uh, so yes, maybe that you know maybe they knew, but even when it was the case was in the newspapers, people were saying, "No, the prosecution can't win this one. No, they're you know they're they're not going to win." Um, and Larry was just in there, you know, fighting to the finish, and even he didn't know till the end if he would get a conviction. But you know, it it, it was a tiger fight because if you read the background of the attorneys he was against. I mean, this was David and Goliath for sure. Wow, where did where did where did he get such good attorneys? Um, well, the state paid for them, of course. You know, well, he, he's the he's the poor pitiful. You know, <laughs> he's the poor pitiful villain. So the state buys him the very best, and the prosecutors work for a salary and put in as many hours or more than the defending attorneys do. But yeah, he. He got great attorneys. We well, had an attorney uh, who uh, represented, uh, later represented terrorists at Guantanamo at federal expense. But he also had the money left from that life insurance policy, believe it or not. He cashed that in. Just uh, He filed for a claim against it in March of 1993, and... At that time, uh, there was no objection in federal court. They'd filed a declaratory judgment act there to get the money. And they got that 50000 plus interest on that. His family uh, had to spend a lot of money as well. The attorney that he started with was a, an attorney in the Atlanta, Georgia area that represented him on the, uh, the extradition proceedings down there. He ended up uh, carrying on his lawyer at, in Indianapolis as well as with this other attorney. He had he had a top-notch legal team, and I know that the family had to pay out a lot of money. And of course, money a lot of money was paid out afterwards to handle his appeals and stuff at public expense. But uh, the money uh, was not an issue. Hmm. So he was able to claim that insurance policy, even though he did what he did. Yeah, well, he hadn't been charged. He wasn't charged till years after that, and there no one challenged 
the insurance company wanted to challenge paying it, but they didn't have any base to do it. They didn't think. If they'd have waited until uh, you know June of 1997, they probably wouldn't have had to pay it out. Hmm. I wonder if they can get it back. Well, good luck there. It doesn't yeah. exist anymore, and he's in prison. Yeah. And so now he, he got, what, 60 years? He's eligible for parole coming up not too far, is it? Like four years or something? Yeah. You know how it worked, worked in Indiana at the time? Yeah. He received the maximum sentence for murder other than the death penalty and life without parole that uh, a criminal defendant could receive at that time. He had 60 years. And in the end, at that time, that meant you only had to serve half the sentence. Plus, as long as you behaved yourself in prison, plus you got educational credits. Uh, He took college courses at taxpayer expense and received an additional four-year reduction of his sentence. So he ended up after with a 60-year sentence actually serving or will have served 26 years. The law has since changed in Indiana, effective 2014, uh, a person convicted of a crime such as that has to serve at least 75% of their sentence. But that wasn't the case back then. Wow, that's just amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Now, do you have a, um, a website or um, anything that people, if they want to uh, reach you or maybe pass on information or find out more about you. And we'll start with Larry. Well, one way that they can obtain information about us is through the uh, Amazon author site. Uh, They they can look up uh, us. If you look up Larry Sells, you might end up finding uh, some guy, I think, in Iowa that writes uh, horror stories. Well, that's not me. I'm the prosecutor in Indianapolis. But if you look up the author section, there's some information in there, and there will be considerably more. Plus, if you buy the book, there's uh, information in there about us as well. There, we're going to, there are blogs that have been written primarily uh, by Margie, and she can tell you about those, but there's information in there. And I'm going to put in my author section of the of the uh, Amazon uh, book site, uh, more information about me personally, some background information. Great. And, and Margie, do you have a website? Author page. I do not. I have, I have, I have the author page, and I'm on Facebook. Heck, I'm not even on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> but Margie can tell you, I've led a pretty uh, colorful life. There isn't much I haven't done over the years, and. I'm going to include that in whatever information I can get out there. Yeah, he's a character for sure. Larry Larry grew up in the Dale Hollow area of Tennessee with grandfathers who were great storytellers, and it shows up in court. If you saw the True Conviction episode, that's just how he is. He, he is such a character. And uh, when he gets into court, people are just mesmerized. The first time we walked through court right before the... Uh, Paula's on episode. All these people, strangers, people who, strangers to me, but people who had not seen him for years and years and years, were coming up to him going, Marlboro Man, you know, because he had such a reputation. He's a mm. character. 
<laughs> wow. Well, you, we have to look forward to seeing that. And and now the book, of course, is available at Amazon or Wild Blue Press or probably any fine bookstore. Um, we will have that linked up on our webpage, so people listening uh, through the site or if they go to the station page, they can just do one click and pick up the book. We recommend it. Um, again, the book is called Race to Justice, and the um, guests have been the authors Larry Sells and Margie Porter. Thank you for telling us about your book and story. Well, thank well, you for thank, having us. Thank you, Al and Julie. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.